Matthew chapter 8, we pick up at verse 18 this morning and consider through verse 23. Matthew 8, 18 to 23. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart onto the other side. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me or permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. Father, this morning we are sensitive to the fact that some of our number have experienced the loss of family ones in the last number of hours. And for them and for us, some of the things that Jesus said here could seem quite tart. And in fact, the Lord meant them to be quite tart so that there would be a seriousness about our sense of response to follow the Lord with a whole heart. He was tart in speech to prompt the idea of whole hearted following of our Savior. So while sensitive to many, nonetheless today we pray that the Spirit of God would have his way in us, that we would hear the scriptures for the benefit of our own souls in a particular way that we would hear it so as to be evaluative concerning our own sense of following thee We often say we do. We often sing that we are. But help us today to consider before thy throne the reality of our sense of following thee from the heart. And for that, we'll praise you and thank you. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. I would remind you this morning that disciple is the term of choice in the scripture for those who follow the Lord Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry in the first advent. And disciple is the biblical term of choice for those of us that follow Christ. Now, we prefer the term Christian, and most often that's the term we use. I'm a Christian. And part of the reason that we like that term is because it cannot be biblically defined. The term Christian is only used three times in the scripture and more than once derisively, meaning that it was used as a term of, oh, those Christians, as a negative. And therefore, the scripture itself does not work to define it for us. And therefore, an awful lot of people think they are Christian. 
And many of those that indeed think they are Christian are absolutely proven quick not to be disciples. Three times Christian in the Bible, two times believers. The term found in the Bible, 269 times in the New Testament, disciples. You can easily build from the New Testament scriptures a characteristic profile of a disciple of Christ directly. You can just take the references to disciple in the New Testament and see exactly the appeal to them and what it is that the Lord commands of them, and you can build a succinct, definitive profile of a disciple. And if you do that, you will realize there aren't many. There aren't many disciples of Christ today. The word disciple itself refers to a person who is taught and trained. Those are two very different words. Taught is about knowledge and information. Training is about application and appropriation. Every parent confronts in the life of their children the issues of taught and trained. And children are only well-taught when they are likewise well-trained. And, as I've often illustrated to parents, when the kiddies are little, uh, the element of your teaching opportunity is very slight, and the opportunity of your training is very great. And as the kids grow and they approach the teen years, you come to the fulcrum point, in which there's a few uh, months and years in which there's almost a balance of teaching and training in the life of a child, in the life of a teen, almost an adult. And then once they get to be an adult, you can continue to teach your adult children, but you can no longer train them because they are no longer under your control and authority. And so that idea of teach and train is essential in regards to parenting. And indeed, as you've heard me say in other venues, parenting is, by and large, discipleship. Disciples are taught the truth of God's word and trained to live after the fashion of Christ. Disciples are taught the word of God. And disciples are trained to live after the fashion of Christ. Historically, churches like ours have been great on the teaching element. We're big on the Word of God, and we ought to be. But it's not enough to know the Word of God. We are to live after the pattern of Christ, and that is discipleship. There are five occasions in this Gospel of Matthew where Jesus said to somebody, follow me which, of course, is a call to discipleship. I read something that characterizes our day much better than I can do. Let me just read it for you from the pen of J. Oswald Sanders. He says, quote, The temper of our times is for instant gratification and short-term commitment, quick answers to prayer, and quick results with a minimum of effort and discomfort. 
But there is no such thing as easy and instant discipleship. One can commence on a walk of discipleship in a single moment of time. But the first step must lengthen into a lifelong walk. There is, still quoting, there is no such thing as short-term discipleship. End quote. Our continuing study in Matthew's Gospel account brings us to the interaction between the Lord and two wannabes. Between the Lord and two would-be disciples. There is an unusual and unlikely scenario developed as Jesus prepares to leave behind a large, enthusiastic crowd and bluntly puts off two would-be disciples. What do we have here? We have something that is very unusual. You can't hardly name a preacher that would do what Jesus did. You can't hardly name a leader of any kind that would do what Jesus did. What did he do? He walked away from a big crowd. And he greatly sobered two wannabes who would follow him. These appear, on the Lord's part, to be counterintuitive decisions. The Lord decided to leave. Most everybody I know would say, time to stay. And the Lord decided to sober the enthusiasm of response towards him rather than say, oh, I'm so glad you chose me. None of that. Nonetheless, Matthew, just prior to this account, has told us, as you well know, of help and healing, the help and healing that Jesus brought to many people, fulfilling the Old Testament Jewish prophecies of the coming one and the kingdom of God. Our Lord's command to depart from the crowd reminds us of some very important truths. I'll just mention four of them quickly. Our Lord's command to depart the crowd reminds us that, one, his purpose in healing the multitude was not an end in and of itself. The Lord Jesus never just healed and helped people Physically, Jesus is doing much more than simply healing people's sicknesses and relieving the oppressed of demonic influence. His purpose in healing the multitude was not an end in and of itself. Two, his miracles profoundly validate his correct identity as the promised Messiah. Three, that he is not interested in politics, nor in revolution against the standing governments of the day. And four, probably the most evident, popularity was not the Lord's goal or agenda. 
All of those things can be drawn by way of, of, uh, uh, of evidence from the truth at verse 18 that when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave demand, command to depart to the other side, other side of the lake, as it were. King Jesus has been, and he continues to preach the message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. As we were set up to know back in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus never was interested, and certainly isn't now interested, in followers simply caught up in the emotion of a moment. His blunt responses to the scribe and to the man who took the first step in discipleship are indeed revealing and very instructive. We want, as I believe Matthew intends us to, to take the two disciples together. But we will quickly walk through the account to make sure that each of you have an understanding of the short account as read. The Jewish people of the Lord's day had a high literacy rate. What does that mean? It means a lot of them could read and write. But most people, though they could read and write, did not have access to ink pens, to books, and writing materials were indeed very, very limited. Prized possessions, but very limited. Throughout the ancient world, a class of people rose that were called scribes. These are people that were trained in reading and writing and transcribing. Because of the rarity of materials and the high value that was placed upon their trade, the role of the scribe went far beyond the modern idea of someone that is simply a bookkeeper or a secretary. There were people, these were people of letters, teaching, interpreting, and even in that day in which the Lord walked the earth, regulating the understanding of the law of God as written. Such a one, greatly capable, highly trained, a very competent person in many regards, such a one, came to the Lord with a pledge to follow the Lord whithersoever or wherever. And Jesus sobers that recruit's enthusiasm sternly. The disciple comes up in kind of cheerleader format, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus says, to him, as recorded, foxes. They have dens. And birds have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, my sense of home has been greatly affected by nature of my mission. And if you are a follower of me, your sense of home 
will be greatly affected as to one who follows the Lord. Foxes, birds, and you. Foxes, birds, and you. In that, Jesus made it clear that if that scribe were to potentially follow other rabbis, other rabbis who promised great rewards if they became a follower of that guru, Jesus makes it clear that there was no great place of honor, there was no great security to be found in the local community for anyone who would follow him. And I'll just drop the word in your mind that's all about the cost of following Christ. There's a cost to following Christ. Disciples are those that bear some cost. And then the Lord's reply to the guy who wanted to bury his dad seems especially harsh. But it is quite clear from the familiar language used that the guy's dad wasn't dead or even near death at the time in which he asked permission. The common expression used carries the meaning, let me go and take care of family business first, and then I will follow you. Jesus demanded that that guy make following his priority. And so not only is discipleship in this particular record associated with personal cost in following, but is likewise associated with a true sense of urgency, necessity, priority, And so if you're going to talk about discipleship, discipleship in regards to Jesus, the Christ, then you have to carefully think about cost, and you have to carefully think about your own sense of urgency. Because apart from some cost-bearing and some urgency of soul, it is pretty clear that one thing you would not be is a disciple of Jesus Christ. When you take these two encounters together, you discover the essential core of true discipleship. And at the end, we're going to add verse 23, because I do believe that that verse, which is not only the end of this section, but the beginning of the next section, that that verse demonstrates true discipleship. And so you have here, uh, in the interaction of the Lord with these two wannabes, you have here uh, the core questions to ask concerning following the Lord. Uh, The first question to ask is, what is the draw of a person's soul to Jesus? What is it that drives you to Christ? What is it that drives and draws you to the person of Jesus Christ?
Christ. It is quite clear upon reading that the draw upon the scribe of record, verse 19, that the draw upon the scribe to Jesus appears to be tainted by lust for personal fame. He was a teacher. He was recognized as a scribe. He had a sense of followers, and he wanted to identify himself with the teacher who was the teacher of all teachers for the sake of getting in on that popularity and momentum as evidenced within that large crowd. The Lord's proverb about not having even a burrow or a nest underscored the fact that following Jesus promised no earthly reward. He said that you that follow Jesus wherever you ought to follow the Lord should be carefully weighed in light of the actual cause. Jesus didn't go around saying, if you follow me, all your problems will go away. Jesus never said that. Preachers say that. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, you follow me and you'll live in mansions, baby. Now, we like to sing about mansions, but uh, not uh, earthly mansions. I trust we know. But nonetheless, what's the draw? What's the draw? What's the draw upon the soul to the Lord Jesus? So often, the draw upon a person to the Lord is not an appropriate spirit-driven draw. The draw upon the second guy appears to be tainted by fortune. He is willing to follow as long as he can first secure for himself that which he will likely need. And frankly, he has it coming to him by way of inheritance. And what he asks of the Lord is, Lord, let me first take care of family business. Let me attend to my parents. Let me attend to my, uh, to my father in the day of his death. Let me settle accounts. Let me, let me earn my money. Let me get to retirement. And once I get to retire, then I'm going to serve you. I'll be glad to go to the far-flung fields of the missionaries if I can only retire first. That's kind of the mentality that you find here in the second guy. Now you can read in verse 23 with understanding at the word of Jesus, the true disciples followed him when he got into the boat. Look at verse 23. And when he was entered into the ship, his disciples followed him. Physically, they followed him at cost. They were leaving home. Urgency. The time to go is now. Well, I got something to take care of first. No, it doesn't work that way. And so the first question to ask yourself about your own sense of following the Lord is, what is your draw to Christ this morning? Are you drawn because of what you think he's promised you on earth? Are you drawn but have your own agenda of how you secure your way until you follow him as he demands? Core question, what is the draw 
upon my soul. First key word that I would give to you today, in addition to your outline, though on the outline, is the four-letter word, draw, D-R-A-W. What is the draw upon your soul? Second key word I'd give you is ripe, R-I-P-E. Are you ripe to make an informed decision to follow Jesus Christ. It is interesting that the scribe is too fast in making a commitment without properly considering cost, while the other guy is too slow giving so much consideration to the details of this and that in regards to the ebb and flow of life so as to delay. So you have two disciples, I believe, meant by Matthew under the Spirit's driving to be taken together. One disciple's too fast to commit, the other one is too slow. The other thing that I suggest to you is that in verse 21, and another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father, uh, that the words his disciples need to be seen in contrast to verse 23, and when he was entered into the ship, his disciples followed him. Now, there's absolutely no difference whatsoever in the words used there, his disciples and his disciples. His disciples in verse 21 and his disciples in verse 23 are exactly the same. Of course, they are absolutely not the same at all. The words are the same, his disciples, but they're not the same at all. And what differentiates uh, disciples from the disciples has to do with either their simple obedience, and I'll come to that, or not. But as we think about this idea of ripe, R-I-P-E, in relationship to an informed decision to follow Jesus Christ, it is to be observed that the scribe was too fast and the other guy too slow. The scribe is like the shallow, rocky soil in which the parable of the sower is told where there is quick sprout and no root of depth. The other guy is dragging his feet, having his own agenda to complete, and then, of course, he would follow the Lord. So he said, and I believe meant in that hour of time, there is a unique time in every person's life just like there's a unique time in every piece of fruit. And that is the moment called ripe. Pick too early, and it's green and unedible. Way too long, and it's often rotten and unedible. Too quick, too late, too quick, too late, too hot, too cold, too hot, too cold, too quick, too late, too hot, too cold. There's something to say about Goldilocks just right. There's something good to say about R-I-P-E, ripe for a good decision 
to follow Jesus Christ. Too soon, too late. Both would be too bad. Ripe is the word that we use for fruit when it's ready and edible. And ripe is also a word that we should use for true disciples. Decisions and commitments too soon or put off too long are bad decisions. There is a limited season when a person is ripe onto wise decisions and godly commitments to Jesus Christ. Don't miss your days of ripe and ready. Don't miss your days of ripe and ready. And if you fear that you have missed your days and you're beyond the days of ripe or ready, be sure of this, if you will turn to God now, then he will respond lovingly and welcomingly to you now. Amen? How do you know Abraham and Sarah? Abraham and Sarah needed God's intervention beyond the years of their ripeness. And in the will of God, he delivered them. He saved them. And so I never fear when somebody thinks that they are beyond uh, the period of ripe and ready uh, to make a good decision to follow on with Christ. I never worry uh, that somehow they'll be left out. If they'll turn to the Lord, they'll find the Lord able to save them now. Amen? That doesn't take away the argument, though, for ripe and ready. And I tell you that uh, it's so easy in the life of a child to push them before they're ripe or to not present to them the response of personal engagement with God when they are ripe. So many people are just going to church, and they'll go to church and go to church and go to church until they go to hell. Because no one has ever made heaven by going to church. It's by having a relationship with Jesus Christ yourself. A relationship with God through Jesus Christ the Lord yourself. And so we ought to press upon people to know and to grow and to come to a place of ripe so as to make a good decision to follow Christ. We ought to be paying attention to ripe and good decisions. And then the third facet of the core questions of discipleship, as we've already indicated, is what of Scripture confirms the decision to follow the Lord Jesus? And therefore, we study and think a moment upon the demand for obedience. Admittedly, this thought is not as obvious as the first two, but please hang in there with me for just a moment. The scribe approached Jesus, calling him master or teacher. He was a teacher, calling the Lord a teacher, or the teacher teacher. He viewed the Lord as a great rabbi. That is a great view of Jesus. 
but it's not great enough. No one will ever be saved because they think Jesus is a great teacher. The other guy calls Jesus Lord, even asking permission uh, for an excused absence until his personal family business is all taken care of. But calling him Lord is not the same as obedience. His view of Jesus was good, but his desired action defied his verbiage. And this takes us right back to where we were when Jesus spoke his messianic manifesto And he said that in the coming day, many would say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And the Lord says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not about profession. You can say you're a Christian 17,000 times every day and every day that you live and still die and be far, far, far from God. It's not about what you say. It's about the responsiveness of your heart and life to God. There is another outstanding fact to be found in this text. Jesus, in this interaction with those two wannabe disciples, for the very first time right here, references himself as the Son of Man. Eighty times in the Gospel accounts, this is the term used Concerning Jesus, it is in fact his favorite way of referencing himself. The question is, why here for the first time? The answer is that the term Son of Man was well known by the scribes as being the way in which God's prophet Ezekiel referenced himself over 90 times. God uses the title Son of Man for the prophet Ezekiel. But that scribe would also know that Daniel uses the same title, Son of Man, for the promised Messiah who would bring the kingdom of God and who would rule and reign. Daniel chapter 7. Jesus uses the expression to clarify who he is and what his ministry is in the first advent. Jesus seeks to connect his life and ministry with the Old Testament text. Jesus fulfills the promises of the scripture. And so when I first started to write down words on a blank pad uh, to organize in my mind for presentation this text, I came up with these three four-letter words. D-R-A-W, draw. R-I-P-E, write. And T-E-X-T, text. Because the sequence of, of appropriation of this interaction starts with the idea of asking the question, what is drawing upon the soul of these wannabe disciples? And it's pretty evident that there's something drawing them that is not 
in of itself pure. We would not associate their draw with the Spirit of God. We would associate it with their homespun desire in one way or the other. And then ripe. What about their sense of ripeness to have appropriate who it is they're following and what it is he came to do and what it's going to mean to follow him? What is their sense of R-I-P-E? Ripe for a good decision to follow Christ. And then text. Is there any possible way to receive Christ without having the text of affirmation from above. Listen, if you and I don't find the concept in the Bible, we have no living assurance that the thing of which we are confident is even a thing. The only reason we can teach, the only reason we can preach, the only reason we can bring counsel, the only reason we can say anything to anybody at any time is because of the text of the scripture. And text becomes a huge element in communicating, as it were, the natural seen result of a follower. And what, according to the Bible, is the natural seen result of a follower of Christ? Answer, obedience. And now again, verse 23. And when he, Jesus, was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. Is there any record the scribe got in the boat? Nope. Is there any record that the other guy got into the boat? Nope. And so how do we read the words his disciples in verse 23? We read them in the true sense. And what makes the true sense the true sense? Obedience. True disciples are those who connect the living word and the written word of God. There is no sense of true discipleship without the text of Scripture. Strong professions do not equal real commitments. Everybody knows that talk is cheap. Jesus said, follow me. True disciples did. True disciples do. You may struggle for years to know if you're a Christian. But you can know in five minutes with an open Bible whether you're a disciple or not. Following Christ is not for people looking for an excuse or seeking to be self-indulgent. Following Christ absolutely means that you give up your own agenda and you embrace His. Following Christ will end in the greatest of rewards, but it will be misleading to say that there will be great ease or honor this side of glory. Discipleship is costly. Discipleship is urgent. Without haste or undue delay, 
may you and I decide to follow the Lord Jesus. The time is ripe. The text is compelling. May you and I be drawn to obey. Jesus calls disciples. His true church makes disciples. Cost, urgency, simple obedience remain the issues of personal confrontation. May we be stirred of God today to follow Christ from the heart. Father, the appeal is easy to understand, impossible to enact, apart from thy blessed and Holy Spirit. And so help us today, and help us in the coming weeks of this month, should you tarry, to have thoughts of Christ, his fellowship, his friendship, his gift to us, and our following response to him. And for that, we will praise you. In Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen.